All right, we're continuing our series this evening on understanding the local church and the questions that you should be asking in regards to this transition recommendation that the deacons and the pastors are making for us here at Community. As we think through this and we've looked at the different passages of Scripture that reference this, there are questions that come up in your mind. As I shared with the group that was here at 5 o'clock, there are questions that should come up in your mind. Questions uh, mean that you're thinking and you're processing, and we always want to make sure that we're look, asking good questions and looking to the right places for our answers. And so let's pray, and then we'll continue this Sunday evening and walking through uh, more questions that you should be asking about this. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would uh, guide our time together. Help us to uh, love you above all else and that we would be biblical in our outworkings. In your name we pray. Amen. The most important question that we need to ask is, is this biblical? That should always be the first question. In fact, if that's the only question that we'd ask, we'd be in a pretty good spot. Is this a reflection of what Scripture teaches? Always, always, always should be the first question. Question. If you've not been here consistently over the past four weeks, I would highly encourage you to listen to the Sunday morning sermons over the past four weeks as it will walk through this and really give a biblical um, underpinning, a foundation for what we've been discussing. So the questions that we've answered is, is this biblical? Spent an entire sermon on that one question. Is this concept of a group of pastors leading and a group of deacons serving, is this biblical? And then the last time we had a Sunday evening service a couple weeks ago, we asked the question, is this in alignment with our Baptist heritage? We actually traced the Baptist foundations and recognizing that this, this is the historical Baptist model that has been adopted by um, our brothers and sisters in Christ in the past who have the same biblical convictions and approaching scripture the way that we do. And so it, uh, it is the underpinning of our Baptist heritage and, uh, and is, I have a whole book on that, by the way. You probably don't want to read Baptist history because it may be boring to you. I found it fascinating. So if you'd like to read a book on, uh, on that, I'd love to give it to you. Uh, is this, if this is biblical and in alignment with our Baptist heritage, why do, I, why do I not see this around me more? We traced uh, the impact of the Industrial Revolution, the rise of the small business, and the CEO model that we see around us in businesses, then also the church growth movement of more people equals more better churches, and so um, it was just all about getting as big as possible, who's the fastest growing church, what are the ways we can grow our church quickly, and, and, and reflecting a lot of that in our church hierarchy as well. We also asked the question, have we been doing it wrong? And the answer was no, we have not been doing it wrong, but I believe there is a step in which we can do it, which we can operate in order to be more in reflection with the pattern that we see in the New Testament. We started to answer the question, why do we need to change? What are some factors at community that are driving us to this point now? And so we talked about the Bible prescribing a plurality of qualified leadership in the local church. The local church is best benefited by serving deacons and leading pastors. The local church is led better by pastors with a diversity of gifts. We've already walked through all of these. Uh, greater biblical wisdom is available to the church through multiple leaders, and the blessings and failures of the local church do not ride on one man's shoulders. Um, the local church is not put in a position of vulnerability during pastoral transitions is the next bullet point. 
I mentioned this a little bit in our, in our time at 5 o'clock, and I actually had somebody give a testimony um, to, to an effect, and I asked her if I could share this with you because I think it, it is a testimony that would reflect this point right here. It's a testimony of a lady who's now part of our church, who was a part of our church, and because of a situation uh, in moving and, and, and living in a different part of the city, uh, she, was, she left community, not because she, there was anything wrong, but because of a, of a transportation issue in 2005. And she said, I came back several years later, and everything was different. And, and I tried to figure out what happened, but nobody would tell me what happened. And, and it seemed like everybody who was here before was gone, and, and, and everything, and the, and the whole leadership, everybody was different. And she said, it threw me off guard. And she told me, she, she said right here about 15 minutes ago, she said, I think if we would have been operating in this model then, that wouldn't have happened. And I would agree with her. The model that this would, that this protects the church, the way that this model protects the church, is that it provides stability and leadership in the midst of transition to where rather than having, oh, we don't have a pastor, we have to go search for another one, we say, well, rather than having 10 pastors, we now have nine, and we're searching for this one to fill a specific role. And so it continues with stability through pastoral transitions. Uh, my dad um, is currently in um, pastoral and in church consulting. He goes and consults with churches mainly when they're going through hardships. And he's a business background. He actually came here many years ago, uh, about five, not many years ago, about five years ago, and did, did a thing where he helped us through some things early on. And his whole job is to help churches that are in the midst of transition or help churches that are trying to, to, to figure out, do we need to build? Do we need to expand? Do we need to change locations? Do we have too many people on staff? We need a pastor, that kind of thing. And he made a comment to me about six months ago. He said, Joe, those churches that have both paid and unpaid pastors in the midst of transition, are stable. And those who don't are not. I thought he, he just said of all the churches, the 30-plus the churches that he's worked with in the past several years, he said that's been the consistent theme. And so this model would provide, um, provide safety, security. It wouldn't put the church in a position of vulnerability during pastoral transitions. Uh, greater biblical wisdom is available to the church through multiple leaders. The blessings and failures of the local church don't ride on one man's shoulders. We talked about that last time. The local church does not take on the preferences or conscience of one individual. And this is very important. That if we have a, a, a situation where just one person is dictating everything that's happening in a church setting just by nature of the way that the church operates, that one conscience would be reflected uh, in the church. Accountability and encouragement is needed in spiritual leadership and authority. And then heightened levels of safety and accountability when sin needs to be addressed within the local church body. Church planters are encouraged, trained, and sent out to a greater extent. You know what happens in the midst of training, uh, raising up pastors from within our church is that there would be someone who would be recognized as a pastor, paid or unpaid, and would be trained and would 
see the, that God is calling them into pastoral ministry. They have that aspiration for ministry. And then all of a sudden the business world or the job opportunities they've been involved in seem less and less of a draw and, and ministry vocation seems more and more of a draw. And that person says, I think God would have me serve in a vocational ministry scenario. And we say, well, our budget doesn't allow us to bring on another. We don't really have a need for another staff pastor. Maybe God would have you plant a church and we can launch that person out. A a healthy church is a sending church. And so continually saying, encouraged, trained, sent out missionaries, sent out pastors uh, as the church is, uh, is operating in this way. And then the church body sees a pattern of ministry being accomplished by a group. Rather than hiring people to do the ministry of the church, the church body sees exemplified for them men in the congregation who are just like they are in every way and doing the ministry with them and leading them in the ministry. And so then the congregation sees a pattern of of ministry by group leadership. Okay, let's go to the next question. Is this the only right way to organize a church? This is a very interesting question. I have uh, friends in the Presbyterian church. We have, um, I have dear friends in an elder rule scenario, scenario in a church. Uh, I disagree with them on the way the church is set up. But the question needs to be asked, okay, Pastor Joe, if, you, if we're going to, transitions are hard, that it's growing pains, it's stretching a little bit. Is this the only right way to organize a church? The short answer is no, it's not. It's not the only right way. But I do think it's the best way. And I want to give you an illustration of how the different models of church governance can function within a local church setting and be used in a mighty way by the Lord. Okay, We just had um, Laverne Waugh here several weeks ago from Zimbabwe. Many of you heard her testimony in Sunday school, an amazing lady. She and her husband, Stuart, born in, South Af- born in Zimbabwe, from South Africa, and in Zimbabwe, through Stuart's ministry and Laverne's ministry there, they planted 12 churches in the villages all around Zimbabwe. They trained those 12 church planters, and those churches are now thriving in Zimbabwe. Just an, an incredible testimony of how God has used them. Let me give you an example of how different methods of church organization are very helpful at certain times in a church's life. Stuart was trained in Bible doctrine, he was trained in theological studies, and he was the pastor of a church. Through a series of events, God split them up and they planted three other churches in these areas in which Stuart was training these new believers to now evangelize and lead more new believers in these uh, village contexts to where it's much like the book of Acts. Everybody in that church is a first-generation believer. They are just now getting to the point of seeing, okay, this person was saved in our church. They have children that have been raised in the church. Those children are placing their faith and trust in Christ and are getting to the age to become members. And for the first time, we have second-generation Christians in our church, okay? You're talking about a baby, baby, baby church. Even the pastors, some of you have been saved ten times longer than some of these pastors have been saved. 
So in that scenario, it would be very wise for Stuart to set up a hierarchical church governance. And here's what that would look like. Okay, guys, here's what you're going to preach on. We've been studying this together. Here's what I want you to preach. Before you step outside of this, you need to come talk to me, okay? Here's how you're going to set up your church. Here's before somebody joins your church, I want to talk to them because they're young in the faith, they're just learning pastoring, and Stuart could set up, we would call that like a bishopric or like a synod or something like that over these other pastors to help them in planting their church. We see this happen in the West all the time with satellite churches, we could call them church campuses, that then get turned into self-governing churches. I don't think it's, it's as necessary in the U.S. because... Um, we have a lot more Christian influence. But when you're trying to evangelize a group of people and they've come from a totally, whether it be Muslim or animistic or whatever background, and they've been saved for four or five years, they're the most mature person in this village, the last thing that you want to do is say, go get them, buddy. Here's a Bible, right? You want to shepherd and to coach. And then there's going to come a point to where that pastor has been taught and has been led enough and has had been, been trained well enough to be able to be on his own. However, all the members in his church are first-generation Christians who have not been taught. They haven't had the ability of sitting day by day to get theological training like this pastor has. They're coming every Sunday. They just got saved out of mysticism or whatever it is, and they're just trying to live for God, don't really know theology to turn all of the authority of the church over to those people is a very dangerous situation. And so for a short time, that pastor may exert pastoral authority in all aspects while his people are being trained. However, if the hierarchical model, let's say Stuart is, is, Stuart's in heaven now, let's say that he planted these churches 30 years ago and he's holding on to authority, does that better equip or does that actually hinder the growth of those pastors? It hinders their growth because he's making the decisions for them. So as they grow, then they step into that leadership scenario. And then as the church matures and grows, so the members step into that leadership scenario. What you end up with is you end up with a model that we see in the epistles and see modeled for us as the church grows through the book of Acts. And that is the congregation, mature believers governing themselves. Does that make sense? So if you say, are the other models wrong? No, they're not wrong. I don't think they're best, especially for our context. I don't think they're best in a long-term mature church. There may be scenarios in which they can be effective and it would be best to operate in a different way as a church is young or in a church planting scenario. But as the church matures and as the church grows in their depth and knowledge of the word, the congregation then assumes the authority as it's filled with mature believers to govern itself. Does that make sense? So, so I would be hesitant to, to say, well, this is the right way and everybody who does it different than us is wrong. No, I would say I, I think we have good reasons to say this is the best way, specifically for a mature congregation like community, um, to be elder-led and congregationally run. Okay, so this is the question. The next question is the question that I get most often. And it normally comes from people who have worked in the business world and um, w would say something like, okay, but who's in charge? If you're talking about leadership by a group, 
who's in charge. This normally comes from, from either managers or directors or, or people who are in leadership situations in a business, and they've learned long enough. They've, they've been in it long enough to know, as my father-in-law used to say, a two-headed anything belongs in a zoo, right? We, we as people, need to be kept accountable. So who's in charge? The scripture tells us that there is one head of the church that we all submit to, and it's Jesus Christ. And so Ephesians 1.22, he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him, Jesus, as head over all things to the church. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. If you expect any pastor or any deacon or any person to be your rescuer and be your savior, you will be disappointed. Christ is the savior of the body. Christ is the head of the church. Colossians 1.18, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So who's in charge? Biblically, all of us are called to align under Christ. However, in the day-to-day operations of the church, especially in a multi-faceted ministry like ours, which has a Christian school, it has kids' ministries, and different aspects of our ministry, different facets of our ministry, who is in charge? So I want to run through a couple different areas of this, and hopefully this this will help you. In regards to the final earthly authority in the church, and I'm going to say this over and over again because I think we all need to hear it, The congregation is the final earthly authority. The congregation decides as a group, and we do this through voting, but decides as a group to accept members, to let members go, to select the pastors and the deacons, to send out missionaries, and to receive missionary reports, as well as, according to Acts chapter 15, protect the doctrine of the church. The pastors would be in charge of leading the congregation in that endeavor. We don't expect you to be an expert on, you know, current trends, inerrant views on the Trinity. Although that's kind of where some of us live. We find those kinds of things fascinating. And so we'll read journal articles and keep up on on different aspects of nuances of where the church is going in a general sense here and there. What we need to be aware of. And so the pastors can lead the congregation, but it's the congregation as the ultimate earthly authority. The pastors lead through teaching, preaching, and providing a spiritual example. Now, most people, when they refer to who's in charge, are commonly thinking of the pastoral position as a staff position. Like, oh, we have pastors, we hire them. Kind of like you would hire a manager at a, at a business or perhaps you need someone to do a, a, something for you in, in, around your house and you hire somebody for that job, you would think, okay, we need someone to pastor us, so we're going to go hire somebody. But the New Testament would, would reveal to us, specifically in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and chapter 6, that the church calls out pastors and asks men to lead And then those who they ask to devote their lifestyle to that, they then provide their livelihood so they can give their entire life to that. We have five pastors. Four are on full-time paid staff. Brent is on um, 
part-time paid staff. He's on full-time paid staff for the summer. We support him as our, he's kind of through, through our missionary support, but he's, he's employed part-time through, uh, through our paid staff and then exists on love offerings to churches he's able to encourage. But all of the pastors that we have are on paid staff. In regards to their employment, and we talked about this at the earlier, at earlier as well, um, I serve as the head of the staff And so in regards to their employment responsibilities, their work duties, I will continue to serve as the head of that. You can call call me their boss or whatever. Um, It is, and I I mentioned this a little bit in the earlier hour, but it is interesting that that pastoral authority is limited by Scripture. So I can't exert authority over you outside the boundaries of scripture but I can Sean and I can Matt and I can Ben and I can Brent because they work for me and so I can tell them their hours of this and their responsibilities here we have staff meetings where we get together and we divvy up responsibilities and organize the staff and that's my responsibility and so from a staff position I'm going to remain the head of the staff and the one that our pastors on staff report to. Um, and so thus I'll, I'll maintain the title of senior pastor in that sense. But when it comes to um, the actual shepherding of our people, then we're going to all do that together. Spiritual decisions made for the health of the congregation will be made as a group of our unpaid pastors and pastors together. So who's in charge? Jesus is in charge. And then the congregation is the final earthly authority. And then in staff responsibilities, uh, I will continue to lead in staff responsibilities. The next question, how is this different than what's been done in the past? And you may say, okay, Pastor Joe, we've had multiple pastors here in the past. Um, Call them assistant pastors, associate pastors, whatever they would be. How is this different than what's been done in the past? The main difference that our church will note about how we have operated in the past and how our leadership is suggesting that we operate in the future is that rather than having one pastor who has his staff, we are having a group of pastors together serving alongside each other and the chief shepherd there is Christ. With that, that group of men leading the church, then we would have a group of serving deacons who would meet the physical needs of the congregation. A way this would be different is that right now our church is set up to have an advisory board, and that board is to advise the congregation and advise the pastor as to things to be brought to the congregation to, to, for, for business, whatever that would be. So anything, any changes that are made, whether it be constitutional changes or anything of that nature, the advisory board looks through that, then recommends to the congregation the changes in the direction that needs to be made. It's not a bad model, but the reason that I don't think it's best is because we have the possibility of having an advisory board where you have many people on there who by nature of their gifting, are not apt to teach. And so you could have advice that's being given that inadvertently, even as we mentioned this morning, would go against biblical principles, not on purpose, give the benefit of the doubt, 
but rather having a group of men who are apt to teach, recognized by the congregation, have been tested and qualified to do such, leading, knowing that their stamp of approval is on the way they handle Scripture and understand Scripture. Again, all the board positions would be elevated to diaconal positions in order to communicate that they are fulfilling a biblical purpose and a biblical office. And then the biggest change would be that we would have a group of men serving in the margins of their life who are willing, who are qualified, and who are um, recognized, ordained by our church, and called by our church to serve as pastors, even though they aren't on paid staff. And so the next logical question to that is, what is the process to become a non-paid pastor? What is the process to become a non-paid pastor? Right now, we know the process of being a deacon or a trustee. This is a new concept, so let's say that there's somebody in our congregation who has a desire to be a non-paid pastor, or someone comes up to them and says, listen, I think you would serve well in this role. I've recognized how you handle scripture. I've sat under your teaching. I've been blessed by your ministry. I think you'd do well to serve in this. What is that process? And I'd like to break down this process into four steps. The first step is identification. Identification. That would be either members of the congregation or by a suggestion of the pastors, this person being nominated for this position. So there'd be a man in our congregation who we believe to the best of our ability by looking on from the outside, has done a good job handling scripture, he seems to have a knowledge of scripture, he's able to communicate it and and benefit the church in sound doctrine. And, uh, And so maybe we approach that person and say, would you be willing to serve in this way of being a non-paid pastor? This would require unanimity among the current pastoral team, and this is very important. I know of two churches who have been operating in the model of paid and unpaid pastors. Both of these churches have had major, major, major issues Because they brought on people to join the pastoral team whom other pastors knew things about their life that would disqualify them. But yet there was someone who maybe it was their good friend or they just wanted to push push the process through and nominate them and vote on them. They came on and it ended up blowing up. And so as I've reached out to many pastors and how to prevent that from happening... The one thing that they say they require is that all the other pastors are unanimous in saying, yes, we see this person as qualified and we see this person as being a, a um, positive spiritual influence in the church. There also needs to be an agreement that this person is qualified, competent, and is willing to serve. That phrase is interesting in 1 Timothy 3, verse 1, someone who aspires to the office of a pastor. I think there's been kind of a misunderstanding um, with some that if someone wants to be a pastor, there's really nothing that can stop them from doing so. Like, if I want this, that's an automatic qualification. And it shows up like this. And you don't, some of you probably haven't had the benefit of being a part of of an ordination questioning time where a person's put on the hot seat, usually for two or three hours, and they have to give a verbal defense of their doctrine. Um, and if it's done right, they're not, people aren't trying to trip them up, but they do want to hear how they articulate certain aspects of doctrine because those really matter. 
And normally at the end of the ordination ceremony, somebody asks the ordination question that if those of our men who sat on these councils know, comes up every time. If we say no, what are you going to do? Let's say that the ordination council meets, we've examined your doctrine, we've examined your family, and uh, rather than recommending to the church to ordain you for ministry, we don't think you're ready, what are, what are you going to do? And it used to be that the, you know, the strong person would say, well, no matter what you say, I'm going to go do ministry anyway. That's what a real leader does, right? Wrong. Wrong. Just because someone wants to serve in this way does not mean that they are qualified to serve in this way, nor does that mean that they should be serving in this way. And so a desire for pastoral ministry is just the foundational beginning. It's necessary because you don't want someone, who, someone whose mama called into ministry because they quit or, they, or it ends up terribly. You don't want someone who's like, listen, we really need another pastor. Will you please serve this way? Like, yeah, as long as you don't make me do this, you know, or whatever. You don't want someone, that's what I'm going to preach on next Sunday morning, 1 Peter 5, not serving under compulsion, but someone who has this stirring to say, I can do nothing else like this is my desire. And those of you who have served in ministry, just talking to Sean, that God called him out of camp ministry into pastoral ministry and and even recounting that stirring in the heart and that drawing, that aspiration. It's not an automatic qualification, but it must be the beginning. And so what's the process? A person must be identified, and, and that identification includes being willing to serve. Secondly, that person must be examined. Their character must be examined by the congregation. The candidate would be introduced to the congregation at the beginning of the process. You know, here's Jimmy Bob, and he has, um, he has been examined to the best of our uh, ability, and we believe that as far as we know, he's qualified, he has a desire to serve in this way. As far as we know in his life, he'd be a blessing, and we're putting him forth as a candidate for pastor here at Community to begin the process. And that's when your responsibility starts. That's when you have him into your home, have them into your home. That's when you then go into their home and you have coffee and you ask hard questions and you examine the character and you watch. You see over a 12 to 18 month examination. So there's training in character through that. You say, why so long? Because there's something to be said for doing something for a long time and how it builds character. I'll never forget when I was trying to figure out if I wanted to do church planting. At that point in my, in my college life, it was, uh, I, I had really two options. I either wanted to go plant a church or I wanted to be a, uh, I want to serve as a chaplain in the military. And neither one of those things came to fruition, but that's okay. But that was like, at that point, those were like my two things I was trying to decide. And my dad made a comment to me at that point. He said, Joe, I've noticed something about church planters. If they have to go on deputation, For two, two and a half years to raise support, they normally stay. You know why? Because they stuck it out for deputation. They stuck it out for two and a half years to travel and raise support. So when they get to the field and it gets hard, they stay. But then he he mentioned another missions agency that has a large endowment that if you go through their their six-month training process, they'll give you two years' salary to go plant a church. You don't have to go on deputation. Sounds really nice, doesn't it? But then you look at the statistics and it's something like 85% of those church plants close after two years. Their salary's gone, 
their, they, their church isn't big enough to pay for them. The thought of getting a second job and having to, to, to pastor is foreign. The character of those long days on the road hasn't been built. And so there's something to be said for a long process and sticking it out and saying this is not something that should be done quickly, but should be done slowly, examining the character, and also training competence in doctrinal aspects and in teaching. That there needs to be a study of theology, a study of scripture, so that whoever this person is that would one day stand in front to be examined by the congregation would have their doctrine in order, written out, so that they could choose their their words wisely and work through these doctrinal aspects so that when the time comes for them to stand in front of the congregation, you've already been looking at them for a year and a half. They've been going through different classes on theology and studies. They've been articulating what their belief structure is on this and that. And then standing before whoever's serving as the current paid and unpaid pastors in doctrinal examination. And then the third step would be ordination. At the end of that 12 to 18 month training period of examination of character and competence, they would be formally examined by the pastors and recommended to the congregation for ordination. The congregation would then vote to ordain that person into pastoral ministry in our congregation. We've already done this once. We did this with Pastor Ben. As Ben sat through the training of his ordination, we called uh, pastors that have mentored him in his life. As we came, we did this with Matt Tracy as well. As they both took six to 12 months to work through these doctrinal aspects to dive deeply into what they really believe on certain things. Because if if someone's going to be teaching, they need to know where they stand, what Scripture says on certain issues, what Scripture doesn't say, where it's silent, where it's strong. And both Matt and Ben sat for ordination and examination here and then was recommended to the church to serve as a pastor. And Community Baptist Church voted to ordain both Ben and Matt to pastoral ministry here. Matt was serving at that point on staff as school administrator, and we ordained him as pastor of the school, with his uh, primary oversight being the school. Ben was serving as a pastoral assistant, as an intern, and continues to serve as an intern. And so that's exciting. No, I'm just seeing if you're awake. Some of you are starting to nod off. No, Ben was serving as an intern, and it was in that moment that the transition was made from intern to elder in the congregation, a vote embracing both Matt and Ben. We've seen it done twice. And those have been for people on paid staff, but for, um, it would continue for those even on unpaid staff. And then commissioning, and that would be a commissioning from our church. We see it in Acts chapter uh, 15, Acts chapter 20. Um, it's right there in the middle of the book of Acts where we see the laying on of hands, and that is nothing magical happening with the laying on of hands, but that's just a symbol of authority of the church resting spiritual authority in this person. Identification, examination, ordination, and commission. Those are the four steps of a 12 to 18 month process of someone becoming a unpaid and unpaid pastor. We answered this a little bit this morning. Why is it important that pastors lead the church and not deacons? 
Uh, when pastors, pastor, and deacons deacon, the church thrives. That's Acts chapter 6. And the word of God increased. So much so that even some of the Jewish priests came to the faith. That's Acts chapter 6. But when pastors are deaconing, spending all their time serving the church and not studying and not preaching and not teaching and not bringing the word to bear, and when deacons who are not qualified and have not been asked to lead are then stepping up and leading, there's conflict. And so unity is found when pastors, pastor, and deacons deacon, and the leadership of the church needs to be able to understand the word, to communicate sound doctrine, and refute false teaching. Um, how is this different than what we're doing now? This was a question that was brought up in the five o'clock hour. We've asked the question, how is it different than what we've done in the past? How is it different than what we're doing now? And um, the answer to this is that the model that we're proposing would not be much different, if at all, than the way our church has been functioning publicly in the past year and a half. We've tried to give you a picture of this, of shared responsibility. I will continue to uh, to preach on Sunday mornings, to carry that preaching on Sunday mornings and, ro- and be part of the Sunday night rotation. Um, I, I mentioned earlier uh, today that I, I believe our church is benefited by hearing um, truth from our pastors. Not only that, I need to sit and listen to preaching. It's good for me to sit and to receive preaching. And it's good for our pastors to be preaching. And so on Sunday night, that will continue to be shared as we feed our congregation uh, in that way. And, and if, you're, if you're mainly involved in what we would call the front end of ministry, almost nothing will change. Un- until we come to certain aspects of ministry transitional periods, or rather than being led by the board, it would be led by the team of pastors. Once those um, unpaid pastors are in place and we have the pastoral team the church would then be led by the team of pastors. And we answered that more fully in the 5 o'clock hour, and we recorded that. We'll place it on our website. And so if you'd like to, to know more about that, you can listen to that. And let me just stop for a minute and just plug that if you, if you haven't heard the other messages, they're building on each other, and perhaps there's a question that you had that was answered a couple weeks ago, and so it would really benefit you to, um, to listen to those messages. Next question, are there any other churches that do it this way? The short answer is yes, many, 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 many churches. Several like-minded churches in our area here in South Bend have a plurality of pastors. I've talked to several other pastors who are like-minded who are actually, it's funny, uh, I was at a, a, a ball game, or a volleyball game, um, and another pastor came up to me and we were talking about things and he said, hey, we're, we've recognized that we've got this hole in our ministry and have you ever heard of plurality? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, we, we've kind of been working through the same thing. He's like, man, we've recognized we've got this huge hole and they're beginning the process in their church as well. It's been really interesting to see. Um, we have, like I said, we as a deacon and pastoral team have interviewed leadership from two different churches, one in South Carolina, one in Utah. Both are healthy thriving, growing, making disciples, they're sending, and they're operating in this model, and it's been uh, really encouraging to see that and to, uh, to talk and interview with those pastors operating in that model. How does this affect me as a church member? How does this affect me as a church member? 
Well, there are going to be several benefits that I believe the membership will receive in this model. First of all, your leaders are able to live in their strengths. And the body is blessed as a result of it. I'll give you an illustration. A couple weeks ago, somebody came in the office and, uh, and said something, something to the effect of, Joe, so do you oversee all the administration of this ministry? And, uh, and from the lobby, I heard a couple laughs of, of people who were in the lobby who know how the ministry is run and recognizing that my greatest gift is not administration. I work on it. it I, I'm not a very organized person. I try and I work hard to be semi-organized. Some of you are organized in your sleep because that's the way that God made you. And one of the benefits of this model is that we can spread out the authority in the church and the lead, excuse me, not the authority, we can spread out the leading of the church in these areas to pastors in their gifting. And so, uh, so that's one way that will be a long-term blessing to the body. Also, you're cared for by more pastors. More pastors in our church means more care for the body. Also, the more men that we have in our congregation seeking pastoral qualification or deacon qualification and being trained in that is is more health for the congregation. One thing that this will do is put on the forefront of godly men in our congregation the concept of whether or not they should be pursuing this. And as men aspire to this and are qualified and are trained in this way, it only anchors our church more fully in biblical doctrine. Spiritual gifting is also maximized as people are able to live and, and minister and, and, and be given freedom in the way that God has gifted them spiritually. I know some of these overlap. How is this going to affect the pastors, deacons, trustees, board, etc.? We referenced this uh, in the earlier hour as well. Um, pastors will be more supported as we lead together. There will be a less um, likely temptation to misuse spiritual authority and a heightened accountability. The deacons will be able to function more fully in their biblical role and the responsibility of those who are currently serving in a diaconal way, whether that be trustees, whether that be Sunday school superintendent, though all of those roles will then be recognized as what they are, a biblical leader, a biblical servant of the church as being a recognized deacon. This would also expand our group of deacons Going from nine this year, as we combine all of the trustee responsibility, the goal would be somewhere between 15 and 20 deacons, all serving in different ways. Smaller deacon care teams, which means better member care and, uh, and heightened accountability even with our members. And so the trickle-down effect of this would be um, more oversight of people in our church and better care. And the, and the trustees and the board being a part of that as well. And then I already, I already answered this one, but um, this is a question that even got this morning. Does this mean I'm going to hear a different person each Sunday morning? Uh, several churches have done it that way. I don't know of a, of a church that has patterned this and, um, and really loved it, and it's been helpful. So we are going to maintain the, uh, the pattern of what we've been doing in that a lot of other responsibilities would be divided among the pastoral staff, but I will keep the Sunday morning uh, services. So like it or lump it, that's what you're stuck with uh, 
That's what you're stuck with now. So, uh, but uh, that's, that's the way it would uh, continue to be for the future. Okay, that's a lot of questions and a lot of answers. And, uh, and we have uh, maybe three minutes. Was there one other, was there a question that we didn't get to earlier or now that you might have and you would like to ask that question in these last three minutes? Some of you have young kids and are like, let's stretch this for every minute that we can while they're in Kids for Truth. But uh, is there any question that you would have that's been brought up that you say, this, would, this is kind of on my mind through this and it'd be helpful to get answered so I don't you know, forget about it or, or sit on it and sleep on it all night? Okay. Oh, Heather, yes. Exactly what we're voting on next Sunday. That's a great question. Um, exactly what we're voting on next Sunday night would be the opportunity to pursue this. Here's what I mean by that. I feel like we as a pastoral team, as a deacon team, as a leadership team, have gone about as far as we can go without congregational um, approval and input. Here's what I mean by that. There are really two ways to go about this process. One is that we begin the process and we take you along with us and, and we get all the way to the end and we work through it and at the end you say, okay, you're, you are now voting to adopt an entire package. Boom, here it is. And you go, whoa, I've got questions about this section and questions about this section, but we put it all in front of you. Or... What I think would be a better model would be to say, okay, here's, here's what we're thinking. And what we're doing is we're voting to begin the process of going down the road. So what we're not doing is voting and saying, stamp of approval, no more questions, have at it, I'm good with whatever. We're saying, okay, now what we can do as a deacon team and a pastoral team, because we don't have the non-staff pastors yet, the deacons and pastors together can, just like we've been going through this process to get to this point, can now start coming up with detailed answers to some of these questions and detailed processes of how this would work to then present to the congregation and along the way present and say, okay, here's what we're thinking for this section. Look about it for two weeks. Let me know if you have questions. We'll talk about it. And then we'll vote for this section and we'll build it section by section. Does that make sense? And then hopefully at the end of this process, and I don't know how long this would take. It could take four quarters of members meetings. It could take eight quarters of members meetings. I, I don't know. But what I do know is we're not going to rush it and try to push something through. And so we would just go section by section and build this together. But before we even begin the process, we wanted to bring the, the church family into this process and say, okay, let's begin the process together. And, uh, and so that's what the, the vote will be next Sunday night. Thank you. It's a good question. Did I answer that? Any other questions? Yes, Logan? There, uh, that the question is, do you have a set end goal in mind? And the answer would be to, to as much as possible, continue to index the New Testament so that our activities and, and setup reflects what we see in the New Testament. That's what the end goal would be. The big picture of that is that the New Testament pictures churches, a church, being led by pastors and deacons, so much so that when Paul writes to the church at Philippi, he says, to the saints who are at Philippi, writing to the pastors and the deacons. And so, to the best of our ability, beginning the process, we would say, 
how can we best reflect that model? So that would be the end goal. Yep. And all of the details of that would be hashed out slowly with the congregation bringing people in on every step of the way. Yep. Good question. All right. If you have more questions, I'd love to meet with you this week. I'd love to, uh, to explain more. If you have questions where you go, you know, I think I need to process this a little bit longer, uh, please let me know. We can talk through that as well. Uh, but um, again, I, w- I would love to sit down any one of our pastors or any one of the deacons who had served this past year who walked through this together. We can answer as many questions we have, as many questions as you have to the best of our ability. We also have, I think there are still these two books. These are not manuals for how, I don't think I said that last time. These are not manuals for how we want to do this. But these are books that... Um, will help you understand what the New Testament says about these two pastors and deacons, elders and deacons, these two concepts. So if you haven't picked these up, I think they're on the Resource Center. If not, I've got these two up here, or you can pick them up on Christian Book or, or Amazon, or I think they're even available on Kindle if you want to read them on Kindle, um, and these will be a blessing to you. Okay, let's pray, and we'll be dismissed. God, we're thankful for the veracity, the truthfulness of your word. We're also thankful for the clarity of your word. And I pray that as we continue to reflect the truth in the way that we operate, in the way that we function, that our hearts would be, above all, to be biblical, that the word would drive us, that we'd be word-centered and that we would live and do church by the book. As we pray in the name of Jesus, amen.